Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we have the story of a man who is fighting to stay in Missouri. Alex Garcia is an undocumented immigrant who has lived and worked in Poplar Bluff for years. His wife and five children are all American-born, but now immigration officials want to send him back to his native Honduras. Months ago, he sought and found sanctuary in a church in Maplewood. For the moment, immigration officials are honoring the rules of refuge and sanctuary, but what's next? Joining me in studio, Carolina Hidalgo, St. Louis Public Radio photojournalist and videographer who has covered this story. Sarah John is the executive director of the St. Louis Interfaith Committee on Latin America. Nicole Cortez is a lawyer with the Migrant and Immigrant Community Action Project, or MICA. Carly Garcia, the wife of Alex Garcia, will join us by phone a little bit later, as will Rebecca Turner, pastor of Christ Church UCC in Maplewood. Thank you all so much for being with us. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Carolina, this is your story. Let me start with you. How did we get to this point where Alex Garcia is in that church in Maplewood? So Alex Garcia came to the United States um, about 15 years ago. He ended up in Poplar Bluff, and he lived his life there. Um, he worked. He started a family. And a, a few years ago now, his um, his sister and his nephew, I believe, came to the United States, um, you know, fleeing violence in Honduras. And he accompanied her to check in with immigration officials. And that's when they discovered that he was here and— um, without authorization and so that's kind of where the process started uh nicole worked with immigration and customs enforcement to get him temporary permission to stay stay with his family and um he got that permission twice and then things kind of changed this year with the executive order that president trump um issued and so he didn't get the permission to stay this year, and that's how he got in touch with Sarah, and the whole process started to figure out how to take sanctuary. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, wanted to deport him, send him back to uh, Honduras. That's right. We should point out the kind of life he was leading in Poplar Bluff was exemplary from what I've read from your reporting. Yes. Yeah, um, the community really, really supports him there. I don't know the exact number, but a lot of people there, most people there voted for Trump. And um, a lot of them, from what Carly has told me, are really surprised they didn't think that it would be Alex that would be affected by this. Let's turn to Nicole now. Nicole, uh, what's the legal position in all of this? Yeah, so Carolina's um, summary was really great. But importantly, Alex had attempted to come to the United States a couple years prior um, in the early 2000s and had been caught um, when he was crossing because he didn't have authorization, didn't have a visa. Um, He was also fleeing at that time violence and and conditions in his home country of Honduras. And at that point, he was issued a removal order. So it's a process that happens on the border. there's no opportunity uh, to see a judge or, or to present some sort of case, but he was just returned to his to Honduras and stayed there for a couple of years before then attempting to cross um, and crossing that at that point undetected. And so he has a what's called a prior order of removal. So because they removed him that first time, um, they now can execute that removal order at any point in time. Um, when they find him, so when they found him a few years ago, when he came onto the radar of immigration a few years ago. 
they have the legal authority to remove him without any further um, process. He doesn't get to see a judge again or make any sort of application uh, to defend against his deportation. And so what we were able to do when ICE detained him there in, um, I believe it was 2015, uh, was we were able to present the equities of his case in an application that's called a stay of removal. And so it's just a temporary um, thing that he was granted for the period of a year at that point and then renewed again for a year. Um, and then upon our third attempt this summer was when he was told um, that although he has, um, as, as Carlina's reporting um, uh, tells the story, he has five U.S. citizen children. Um, one of them has Asperger's syndrome. Um, and, and so presenting the equities of his case, his, his long ties and, and deep ties in the popular wealth community, showing the immigration authorities that this isn't the type of person um, that they can use their discretion to allow him to stay. And so, as I mentioned, they were, he was granted that discretion that it was exercised in his favor for two years in a row. And then this summer, um, under the Trump administration, those the way in which that discretion is ex- exercised changed. Um, Does he have any legal protection in that church? So in the church, now that he's taken sanctuary, um, it's uh, it's a it's public. It's not a it's not a hiding or a being a fugitive. He's very publicly taken sanctuary in an effort to protect himself and in an effort to allow the immigration authorities to exercise their discretion in his favor. So we've um, applied uh, multiple times this this fall and winter um, for the stay of removal with the address of the church as his address. Um, ICE is very aware that he is there, but they also have a internal policy um, to avoid sensitive locations. So that includes, they don't do enforcement operations um, in churches, in hospitals, in schools, generally. So that's generally their practice, and it's something that, um, to date, they have respected, but is also shifting. And I would sort of allow Sarah to speak a little bit to that. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, mean, so I think when the sanctuary movement um, came about, right, so sanctuary has a a really deep history in our country, and specifically in St. Louis. Um, I uh, have the honor of working for an organization and learning from mentors and leaders that worked with the sanctuary movement in the 80s here. And so sanctuary in and of itself is um, calls on our deep-seated, deeply held beliefs um, that are common in many of our faith traditions. And so what that looks like in the present day um, and in some of what you might hear is the new sanctuary movement, um, this is looking at the moral dilemma that we're facing in this country right now um, with heightened immigration enforcement and uh, in no solution through Congress, right? So so at the end of the day, people of faith and goodwill are coming to recognize that we need to change the laws and pushing for that and arguing for that, and Congress hasn't done it. So in light of that history and this current inaction, Sanctuary is uh, an opportunity to respond um, and to 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 paint that vision and to live into our values uh, in in this prophetic action. How how widespread is the sanctuary movement? Is it a national movement? Absolutely, yeah. So just by way of example, um, in 2016, before um, the new administration, there were about 400 congregations nationwide that had made some sort of declaration that they would. Uh, offer radical hospitality and and live into the myriad ways that you can um, act out or live into your values through sanctuary and sacred resistance. 
2017, that number has more than doubled. And um, the latest reports um, from the National Sanctuary Organizers suggests almost a 1,000 congregations are now involved in this work. Uh, we're going to bring uh, Alex's wife, Carly Garcia, into the conversation now. And, and those of you with me in studio, if you have any questions or comments to make during this part of the discussion, feel free to do so. Carly Garcia, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me, Carly, uh, how you and Alex uh, came to this decision to to uh, take the steps that have been taken? We we came to the decision um, because, you know, the violence that is back in his home country and the fact that it would be nearly impossible for us to be able um, to go see him and have him be able to watch his children grow, um, that took a, a very big factor in our decision for him to go into sanctuary. Uh, how, how long did you wrestle with this issue before making that decision? It didn't take long. <laughs> I, I pretty much knew it almost, pretty, almost immediately that I wasn't, I wasn't going to lose him. How difficult has it been for you to cope with all of this? I mean, you have to drive a couple of hours to see him. I understand you do it on weekends with the kids. Um, give me some sense of what a burden this has been for you. It's been very hard. Um, you know, I have I have toddlers um, that it doesn't matter, you know, what you say to the toddlers. They they don't understand why Dad can't come home with us. Um, the The older three, they... They try to understand. But are having difficulty doing so. Yes. How, how are you supporting yourself for when, the, when your husband is not available to work? Well, unfortunately, um, I've had to go back to, um, to assistance from the government, which I was able to... Um, come off of when I um, got with Alex. But now I have to go back to that because he can no longer be with us at home and work and help provide for us. Um, that and, you know, the support of my family um, is how I'm, I'm able to financially do it, but it's definitely getting harder the longer he's gone. I get the sense in talking with the, with the ladies here in the studio that even though ICE uh, has been committed to not moving in in a sanctuary or refuge situation, that could change. How are you dealing with that? How is he dealing with that? I'm not dealing with it very well. I think um, I think Carly and I uh, have spent some significant time over the past week um, specifically in wake of increased enforcement activity nationwide, right? So two, between two and three weeks ago, we saw a wave of uh, immigration enforcement that um, targeted family members of those living in sanctuary, immigrant leaders in the sanctuary movement, uh, immigrants' rights activists uh, more broadly, and and this pattern of increased surveillance and uh, really tracking and monitoring these specific individuals is terrifying, right? And so I think um, when we have conversations here locally, and, and, and I think Pastor Becky can weigh in on this too, that um, that it almost further defines the moral dilemma here, right? When when we have members of our community that say, you know, 
I, I can't even raise my family um, because my, my government is telling me that I'm not supposed to love him or I'm not supposed to be in this way and then taking it away, um, then, then our then our churches and our congregations and our in our neighborhoods don't have anything other to do than respond. Mm-hmm. And so what we are preparing for, what is it going to look like um, as ICE continues to violate their own policy to not conduct enforcement activity in sensitive locations? And what does that mean for our shared uh, shared values? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what will we be called to do? Carly, what does it mean to you, and, and how do you respond to, to what's going on nationally with regard to a, a certain national political mood with regard to dealing with people who are undocumented? I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm not really um, coping with it very well. Um, I mean, the thought of not having him... Obviously, it's a very emotional uh, subject for you in a very emotional life that uh, you're living. Carly, how long can you go on like this? Um, I, I honestly, um, emotionally, it feels like I can't. But I I will go as long as I need to to make sure he's, he comes back home to us. Well, you know, you've got a lot of people working for you, and I'm sure they're working very, very hard. What, what kind of support are you getting from the community in Poplar Bluff? I get a lot of support. Um, a lot um, of people there, um, they they really want Alex to come home. They, you know, they they pray for me and um, for Alex, and they, you know, they, they're definitely there when, um, when I need somebody, whether it's... Um, just somebody to talk to or just comfort. They're there for me. And they're there for our children. Well, that's that's encouraging to hear, and I'm sure you're encouraged by it, Carly Garcia. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know it's an emotional thing for you to have to deal with and talk about and talk about publicly, but a public conversation maybe will lead eventually to some sort of change in this area. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm going to take a quick phone call now because I think it's relevant in this point in the discussion. Joe wants to join us from Creve Coeur, and uh, let's take his question or comment. Joe, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm just curious, is there a GoFundMe page or is there any mechanism whereby we can help um, specifically this family, but also more broadly um, families that that are in need of these uh, services and this sort of not just the legal and representation, but the, the basic, as we just heard, the basic needs of this family. Thank you for the call, and I think Sarah wants to... Uh, I would love to answer. Thank you so very much, Joe. I think, um, so, so the quick answer is yes, um, donations can be made to Christ Church, United Church of Christ in Maplewood, um, and those donations will go directly to support the um, the Garcia family. I think um, broader donations uh, or donations to the broader causes to a local St. Louis Sanctuary Coalition, those can be made payable to the Interfaith Committee on Latin America. Um, and then certainly there are national organizations. Um, SanctuaryNotDeportation.org is a great place to start. We'll put all of that information on our website at sdlpublicradio.org uh, so that folks can, uh, can reach them more easily. 
have to take a break. We'll do that now. We are talking about sanctuary. The case of Alex Garcia, a man who was uh, taken sanctuary at a church in Maplewood uh, as the Immigration and Customs Enforcement people are trying to figure out a way to send him back to Honduras because it is undocumented. Back to continue the conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our discussion on the issue of sanctuary for an undocumented immigrant here in Missouri. Uh, Nicole, we ought to point out we were talking about uh, funding for all of this that Micah also accepts do- donations, correct? Thank you, Don. Yes, we do. And how can, they, how can folks uh, get, get cash to you? You can visit our website at www.mica-project.org. Um, and that would fund, we do direct legal representation in immigration cases. Okay, that information also will be on our website. Staying with you for a second, Nicole, um, is there any kind of a timetable on any of this, or is this, you know, can this go on in, totally indefinitely? I think that's the really difficult part about this, um, both for Alex and his family as individual as as an individual case example, but also as a broader movement. And I know um, Sarah probably has some things to add about this, but I think the decision to take sanctuary is certainly not one that was taken lightly. I mean, Carly um, spoke really eloquently about you know for them it was a clear decision. They weren't going to go down. Um, without a fight. They weren't going to let their government take away. Um, she wasn't going to let her government take away her husband without looking into every any and every possibility. But um, sanctuary is not something that is a tool that works for every family and for every individual. Um, sanctuary is something that it is only really effective and can only be really be used as a tool um, when there is sort of something that a family or an individual is moving towards legally. Um, so Sarah, I don't know if you have anything to add about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the timeline here goes back to what is what is broken, what is not working, right? No, no one wants to be doing. I don't want to be organizing sanctuary. I, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't want to yeah. be be doing this in that sense, right? I want to be um, be able to engage our elected officials um, about real conversations about reforming laws are going to look like. Um, and and I and I want to be able to think long term with our community leaders and with the the very courageous leadership right here in St. Louis from immigrant voices that are that know what we need to do and know how we need to change it and and are being ignored. And so I think when you look at how do you make a, a specific sanctuary uh, sort of case strategy for one person, it is both individual and inherently social at the same time, right? Which is one of the strengths of the sanctuary movement, right? So it, it is a strategy for local, for, for immediate relief for a family, but it is also a means to a larger end. Is there any local political dialogue that would have any bearing on a case like this? Um, we are certainly um, engaging as many elected officials as possible, both at the local, state, and federal levels. Um, and unfortunately, um, the responses this year from some of our de- Democratic leaders have um, been uh, insufficient. Um, I think there's a space that um, it feels risky, but when you hear from Carly and and you really look at these families and look at our values, there's not a choice of whether or not um, you you raise your children with their father or not. 
Um, there's not a choice to be made there. Nicole, are there any negotiations taking place right now? And if so, among and between whom? So, yes, and this gets back a little bit to, I don't know that I fully answered your question about timeline. And so the legal remedy that Alex is seeking is um, still, as I mentioned, a stay of removal. So the only, um, the way immigration policy is written right now, the way the laws um, create immigration benefits and immigration relief, there's nothing more um, that Alex qualifies for under the current laws as they're written than the exercise of ICE's discretion in saying, okay, we won't remove you for the next six months or one year or whatever they, they discern. Um, and so that that is still uh, the remedy that he's seeking, still uh, the strategy that we're working around in order to, he has, we have now filed um, since he's been in sanctuary, and that request has again been denied, even though um, in addition to the, the equities about his case, we were able to include hundreds, almost a thousand signatures um, from many, many folks in Poplar Bluff, but also across the state of Missouri and across the nation um, who came together to in support of Alex and his case, um, in addition to uh, support of local elected officials in the Maplewood area who, who wrote letters of support. And so the next step will be to escalate that and to file that request again and to give ICE another opportunity to exercise their discretion in the way that we, we believe it should be exercised. I think one, one thing that um, I didn't know before and that Nicole and Sarah have explained and um, would be interesting to hear from you about this is that when we talk about ICE granting Alex a stay of removal, that it's it's almost up to one person, right? And I think Sarah put it as like, there's one person sitting in an office who can make this decision. I think a lot of people don't know that that's how this works. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not the the immigration attorney at the table here, but this comes to a space of, Nicole mentioned this word that gets thrown around a lot, discretion, right? And that and that means choice, right? So, someone will theoretically is charged with reviewing this application, reviewing the um, the context for which um, a stay of removal could be granted, and deciding whether or not he feels like saying yes or no. But this person wor- works for what the Department of Homeland Security, That's ultimately. Correct. So yeah. he's got a boss who has gone on record as not being particularly. Uh, sensitive to issues like this. That's correct. And that's why you see communities of faith and people of goodwill taking action. I, I want to go to the, the pastor of the church where Alex is staying, but one quick question for you, Nicole. What sort of legal um, position is Alex in if ICE just goes into the church and pulls him out? And it, that could happen. It, it certainly could um, and would be in violation of, of their stated policy about sensitive locations, but it's something that I think Alex is acutely aware of and certainly all of us involved. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, ICE has the legal authority to remove Alex at any point in time. They have a, an order of removal from years ago that can be executed at any given time. Does he have any legal uh, footing on which to stand if that happened? It would only be, again, this request for a stay of removal. Otherwise, back to Honduras. Correct. Let's let's bring in the pastor of the uh, uh, Christ Church, United Church of Christ in Maplewood, where Alex is uh, is currently residing. Rebecca Turner, uh, thank you so much, uh, Pastor, for for waiting to uh, come on the air with us. Appreciate that. I'm honored to be included. Thank you. Tell me how you came to the decision to provide this sanctuary to Alex Garcia. 
really that story begins for our congregation a year ago, um, last January, when we began asking the question, who are the most vulnerable people, you know, in our community these days? And the answer that rose to the top was, we're really concerned about immigrants. And so we, we didn't have a, a history and experience with working um, locally with immigrants, and so we began to build relationships. We reached out to the Interfaith Committee on Latin America, um, Sarah taught us um, a lot and connected us with other people. And then we began taking smaller actions and talking about, you know, how, what does the community need and how can we be involved? And, and all along the way, we were talking about sanctuary as a broad concept, but also as a narrow concept, you know, the one we're talking about today of actually taking, uh, of offering a safe house for um, a person who is under threat of deportation. And so um, over the months, you know, we, we kept educating ourselves more and more. And then in September, I received that phone call saying that there was a man who needed a, a sanctuary and um, and would I be willing to um, allow him to come into our church and because of all the work we'd already done because of the preaching that I do every single Sunday that's about being open and welcoming and you know basically following scripture about how we treat um, the person that is sojourning among us um, the the answer had to be yes I didn't feel like I could possibly much like Carly says how could I not um, fight for my own husband, I have to say, and how can I not, you know, welcome um, a neighbor into the uh, into the church building? I have to say yes to that. How much input did your congregation have to these decisions? Uh, we, um, a few weeks before that call came, we were, um, the, the church council um, voted to approve a um, a declaration of sacred resistance. And again, we had, you know, been talking for all of these months so that we'd been in conversations. We'd done a lot of educational pieces about immigration and what sanctuary is. And, and so the, this declaration of sacred resistance was taken to our council to, you know, to say, are we ready to make that commitment? Are we going to say yes to providing sanctuary to those who need it? And the council approved that. The, the living conditions there for Alex, uh, mm-hmm. my understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, that there, there is a separate kind of living quarters uh, that uh, where he is residing? Um, it is a part of the church building, but, but he does have privacy. <laughs> so it's separate in the sense that he has privacy, that people aren't getting into you know, the space where he's living. But it's, it's not like a separate building. You know, it is an apartment within the church facility that, you know, that we created very quickly um, to be able to invite him in. You know, I, I'm getting the impression in, in hearing the discussion so far that this is a somewhat tenuous situation. I keep coming back to it, even though ICE does have a policy, has followed the same policy for a period of time now, that this could change at any time if uh, they chose to do so. You know, what would your response to be if they came into the building? Um, it, it's it's incredibly upsetting that that although they've had that long-term policy um, that's been in place, that we now have to fear that they would even turn against that because it's so cruel and it's so immoral that they would go to those lengths to even invade a church sanctuary space in order to rip a family apart. 
And, and so it's, it's just really upsetting to me that we even have to consider that they might do that. Um, I, so, you know, I, I, I just want to speak out, you know, with the outrage that I feel that the government is behaving in this way, you know, that they would encroach upon sensitive spaces, that they would encroach upon sacred spaces in order to destroy families. You know, it's immoral enough that they are destroying families. They are deporting people who um, are fathers and mothers and good people in their communities uh, that need them and uh and, you know, right now it appears that they're not using discretion in an appropriate way at all. And so, you know, what, what it, when I hear that kind of conversation, you know, you're saying, what do I do? Well, I speak out even more um, to, to say that it's simply not right. And, you know, I, I personally, you know, as, as a Christian, the, the law that I follow is that the, the law that people ask Jesus, you know, what's the most important law? And he, Jesus said, love. You have to love God and love your neighbor, and that that is more important than anything else we do. And so I will continue to do that. And Alex is absolutely welcome here for as long as he wants to be here. Reverend Turner, stay with us, if you will. I'm going to take a phone call now that uh, may be something you choose to answer if I have the, co- the question correctly. Jack is joining us from Valley Park. Jack, go ahead. Uh, yes, I just had a comment. You know, my uh, my parents are immigrants. They came from the Philippines. Uh, but I don't agree with, you know, just the idea that, uh, you know, just allowing anyone to come here and breaking the law. You know, we our, my parents had to follow some rules to get here, and they did. They waited a long time. Uh, and my I've, I have cousins that they'd like to come here, uh, but they can't. You know, they haven't been able to get a visa. And you know they're they're following the rules. They're they're just not coming over here. And I, I you know, in the Philippines, uh, the big thing there is corruption. There's no rule of law, and people there like admire the U.S. Hey, they've got a rule of law. It's not corrupt here. Our problem is corruption. And you know, just uh, flouting the rules, uh, flouting the law. You know, I, I don't agree with a lot of immigrants. Don't agree with that. You know, if you didn't want to come here uh, just to recreate the conditions that we left. Jack, I'm going to stop you there only because we have a time consideration here. I think we get the point. And I'll, I'll just throw this question or not, and I'll start with you, uh, Reverend Turner. Uh, what we are dealing with here, people like Jack are going to say that Alex Garcia broke the law. Therefore, he has to pay the consequences. Uh, the problem is that immigration law, and um, certainly your other guest there in the studio can speak to this um, far more uh, in far more detail than I can. But the immigration law is not consistent for all people from all countries. And it's, um, and the execution of the orders of removal are not consistent either. And so, um, you know, it, it was not always illegal for uh, someone to enter this country in the way that Alex has. And, and laws changed. And so it's, um, we have to look at the laws themselves and say, but is this a just law? Are we are we carrying out these laws in just ways? I would say that there is a lot of corruption in our current immigration policy. Rebecca Turner, I want to thank you for spending time with us. We'll let you go now. Our time is winding down, and I'll get uh, some input from the folks in the studio. But thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Nicole, what do you say to that argument? You've heard it many times before, that we're dealing with someone who broke the law. Absolutely. And I think um, Jack brings up some really good points. And and in fact, um, the Philippines is a really good example of how um, our immigration policies really aren't a workable system. So, for example, he mentioned, I believe, some cousins, um, folks, even his own family that had to wait in long waits. I think the Philippines is the most oversubscribed category of family immigration. Um, In fact, folks are waiting over 20 years, sometimes closer to 30, um, even when they have the appropriate family member who can petition for them. So in Alex's case, he didn't have a family member. Our immigration laws don't allow for someone from Honduras to just show up at the consulate in their country, the United States embassy or consulate in, in Honduras and say, I would like to move to the United States. What form can I fill out or what fee can I pay? I would like to do it the right way. There aren't um, There aren't visas for that. There aren't our immigration policy doesn't allow um, for that. And so although Alex entered the country without authorization, you know, now that he's 15 years into his stay here and has married a U.S. citizen and has U.S. citizen children, our immigration system continues to provide no option for him um, in order to, quote, do the do things the right way. Um, and so he wasn't able, Carly wasn't able, as his U.S. citizen spouse, to petition for him because of his immigration history. His children, you know, having children here also is not going to allow him to fill out a form or pay a fee. And so I think it, it brings up some really good examples of, of the the sort of rampant um, injustice within that the policies and the way they're written. Sarah, do you want to weigh in on that? We only have a minute left, but you want to make a point? But no pressure. Um, no, pressure. no, I think I think it I, I think it's right on I, to hear the concerns that we have about the the laws, right? And and this notion that we have that rule of law is this like holy governing principle in our country. Um, we people make laws and and sometimes um we make poor choices in how those laws are crafted and so it is in my opinion the responsibility of people of faith and goodwill to hold that up and say this is wrong and it is immoral and we can do better yeah. thank you all so much carolina ildago of st louis public radio thank you for being with us rebecca turner was with us too pastor of the christ church united church of christ in maplewood the sanctuary that we've been talking about sarah john executive director of the st louis interfaith committee in latin america nicole cortez is a lawyer at the migrant and immigrant community action project we also had with us by phone Kelly Garcia, the wife of Alex Garcia, who at this moment is at that church in Maplewood. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.